This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Trolls Orton, who has held prestigious leadership positions with organizations like the World Economic Forum, Center for Cybersecurity, the Danish Security Intelligence Service, Europol Counterterrorism and Financial Intelligence Center, as well as the first European Cybercrime Center director. Charles, thanks for chatting with us today. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. It is a truly our pleasure. So before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and kind of how you got to where you are today? It's an interesting question because uh, sometimes it's also based luck and uh, coincidences. It's, it was not planned. So I'm uh, originally a police officer, and I uh, grew through the ranks to become the first uh, head of operations in the national police. And then I became the head of operations in our Danish security intelligence service, the equivalent to the CIA. From there, I moved to international uh, policing and became the the director of counterterrorism and also organized crime in Europol, the agency that helps the 2.4 million police officers protect the 500 million inhabitants in the union. And from there, I, I went to become the first chief and director of the European Cybercrime Center. The European Commission and the Parliament invented, and I was chief there for, for three years. It was a fantastic time. From there, I moved to the private sector and became a CISO for Barclays Limited. And I had the, I was group CISO and had the privilege to, to defend 148,000 employees and 51 million customers in 55 countries. And that was a huge task. And I was so busy during the four years there. And from there, I moved to the World Economic Forum, where I became the director of the Global Center for Cybersecurity, which is a more strategic position, you know, aiming to see if you can find any you know, common grounds between East and West, North and South in combating cybercrime. And now I am an advisor for the World Economic Forum, and I'm a board member, and I'm trying to retire, which is very, very difficult in cybersecurity because you tend not to get rid of it. There is just so much work to be done, but I'm trying to actually retire. Yeah, you're uh, good luck for that. You are uh, one of many, many people I know who have, you know, the passion to help the world in this way. And like you said, the internet, you know, isn't going away anytime soon. So there is always like a new problem. And, uh, you know, you're kind of like Batman, right? You like, when do you hang up your cape? Well, never, yeah, right? Because exactly. uh, <laughs> evil still exists in the world. So tell me, you know, based on your vast experience, because that's quite, you know, the list of opportunities and exposures to different industries and situations. How do you envision international collaborations, in particular, like combat cybercrime? And what role do governments and private industry, where do their synergies exist and how could they be working together? It's a great question because this has changed during my watch. When I was in um, the director in Europol, I had two uh, MVD department, K Russian police officers working with me in Europol, uh, helping to combat uh, child sexual exploitation. That will never happen today, right? We in Europe, we have a war now with uh, between um, Russia and Ukraine, and we are siding with Ukraine. So, so we have a very, very bad cooperation. You also see the polarized situation between the U.S. and China, which also have a huge impact in the geopolitical tensions that we see. So, what we are left with now is that there can only be a 
solid cooperation between the good guys, the guys that we support, let's say the EU, US, the Five Fire countries and, and, and some other regions. And I think that this is where we see that the cooperation will move to is, is among these countries. And, but, but we need to increase it because it's not very good. I was to my first uh, cybercrime conference 22 years ago. The conclusion at that time was that cyber was a difficult task. It was a huge problem. We need to exchange more intelligence and work closer together. I was on a cyber conference today, and the conclusion was exactly the same 22 years later. We haven't really moved in the direction of better and more intimate cooperation. There are still a lot of you know obstacles toward exchanging things. So I think that what we need to do is to see to build bridges and not walls between our ability to exchange, not information, we have a lot of that, but insight, you know, valuable insight about how our opponents do, how they misuse potential, how they sneak into our various networks, and in order to see if we can combat that in an easier way and a faster way. So I think we have a lot to do still. I will always claim that humanity will survive the internet, and I'm a really positive internet guy, but I think that we need to do a bit more in incorporation. I completely and, and wholly agree. You know, one of the, um, I think, unintended side effects of the conflict in Ukraine is in particular around things like SASAM or CP, as they like to call it here in the United States. You know, that problem isn't going away. And there are very, very impassioned law enforcement people in those countries that have nothing to do, you know, with the, you know, external conflict, let's call it. And it's, in my opinion, it's one of the tragedies of that war is the children who aren't at the war. I mean, obviously the children in the war itself, that's an absolute tragedy. But I don't think people realize that when these situations arise and these, let's call them previous, whether they just be simple intelligence sharing, but more ideally like kinetic efforts, you know, where, hey, this person lives here, please go arrest them. Here's what they've done, you know, which is the major role of Interpol, Aeropol, you know, that's the whole, that coordination is about a kinetic right. outcome, right? This person goes and gets arrested. Yeah. yeah. That has all just vanished. And Eastern Europe, uh, Central Asia, South Asia, these are places that are, I hate to use the term hotbed because it's a little bit ugly of a term to use given the context, but those are the places that are major sources of this type of stuff. And, you know, I don't think that anybody even considers the, what I would call secondary or tertiary ramifications of these types of conflicts, because I bet no one is considering like, oh, wow, now there are kids, you know, who are being exploited for perverts around the world or, you know, what have you, that now no longer have an ability to, once they're discovered, they're not able to report back, hey, we think this person is is the person. And that's an absolute tragedy in my opinion. So sorry, I'm not trying to pivot to and have us talk about the situation in Ukraine, but that type of cooperation or the lack of, you know, after something like this happens, I bet the law enforcement people who were working on all of this with all of their heart, I bet they are the most upset by these you know, things, you know? Yeah, I agree. Anyway, so your time as Group CISO for Barclays, our, our audience, I assume we have, you know, law enforcement folks as well, but most of our audience is comprised of a lot of CISOs, a lot of cyber you know, decision makers and things like that. So. What are the key lessons that you picked up in your role there at such a high-profile organization, at such a massively impactful asset that you're protecting, right? What were the key insights that you learned there? And what would you, from there, what would you share to other folks in similar situations? 
I think what I discovered when I came from law enforcement to private business, first of all, was in law enforcement, I had a lot of muscles, but limited information. When I then moved as a CISO, I had all the information in the world, but no muscles to actually do anything with it. So I needed to bridge it to get these information to the police. And there was a huge, let's say, there was obstacles to do it. Lawyers will always see problems in exchanging information that is intelligence and the GDPR and, and, and what do we have. So, so there was a lot of things that needed to be done. But first of all, I think I learned that we need to actually put our money where our mouth is. So when we talk about cooperation, we established the Cyber Defense Alliance. It's still active now. I think we started with nine banks. Now we have 28 banks. And this is a iron dome for exchanging sensitive intelligence insider information between banks. So we are not competing on security anymore. We might be competing on interest rates and whatever, but not on security. There is so much crime, there's enough for everybody. So we need to find a way how we can chop up the elephant. And one of the things I'm proud of is that we established that alliance and we actually exchanged information. Another thing I am not so maybe proud of was that I still remember that day in, I think it was back in 2017, when the shadow brokers, they uploaded you know, eternal blue that they have stolen from the NSA and they gave it away as a token of, uh, you know, goodwill to people who want to subscribe to their various malware. And my guys were looking at that and, and saw that this tool could be weaponized, but it would probably take six weeks. And then we saw that Microsoft sneaked out two critical patches and we knew that we need to patch an estate. In the bank world, to patch the estate, that takes six weeks. And we started working very, very, very fast. So when WannaCry came, which was the outcome of the Charm Blue, in the first instance, we were totally prepared. But I forgot to inform my peers and other ones around the world what we were doing. And that insight, I'm still a bit, you know, disappointed that we didn't, you know, harmonize the exchange of this and the way that we spread it. And I think this was 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 the learning we have. And now we are doing that in a much more elegant and fast and swift way. It's not enough, but it works in banks. But, you know, we have huge other sectors where we don't have the same cooperation. So so I would urge people to actually seek cooperation, not just exchanging coffees and drinks and whatever, but real exchange of the most sensitive information. If I'm hacked on a Monday and I tell you how they went through my systems, then you might be able to prevent them from hacking you on a Tuesday. And that's the simple thing. Sure. So, and correct me if I'm wrong. So this is similar to like a international FSI SAC. Is that the organization you're describing? Yeah, it's, it's, it's FSI SAC, but probably even more close. FSI SAC, okay. if, if you look at that, some of the exchange in the ISACs, it's relatively um, light information. Here we have the most sensitive information. I had a DDoS attack, for instance a DNS DDoS attack. And the first thing I did was to inform my colleagues that I was under DDoS attack. It was a DNS. I couldn't, you know, handle it with Prolexic and Akamai alone. I needed to do something. My colleagues said, don't share this information. You will be on the front page of the newspaper if you do that. But, you know, I did anyway. We need to, to share this. And they helped me. They sent the task force. And we managed to actually get to it. And I think this is this is the next level of the ISACs is that it's actually a kind of a task force between the best you have in these nine banks can work together. And that is a very powerful team that you establish in that way. 
Okay. So are you describing like a human communication network or is this like a machine to machine, something like Sticks Taxi or, you know, something? No, it's, it's human. We have these people sitting in real life and they are actually hosted by the city of London police. So they, they are in the police premises. They are sitting around a table. They have access to all the most uh, secret information in each bank and they can share this information instantly in order to prevent something from happening. For instance, if you have fraud cases, the first thing that you notice in a fraud case is that a lot of your mule accounts in other banks are activated. And then you are looking for the bank who is being defrauded because you can see that they are handling money and now you just need to find the source. These are some of the things that you can do in real life. Much of it is automated, of course, but you still need human beings on the ground because that also builds trust. Sure. And does that tie in like uh, members like Swift, for example, who are kind of the connective background? Swift are a member of some of the similar corporations we had in the World Economic Forum. They're very, very close uh, ally in that. But in the other ones, it was Santander, it was uh, Deutsche Bank, it was Barclays, RBS, and other banks like that, that was working together. And now it's expanded since mm-hmm. I left because it's still working. It's becoming an, let's say, independent judicial area with its own director. Now it's working very, very good. Oh, excellent. That's fantastic. So let's pivot just a little bit and let's talk about some other aspects of your experience. So your background in counterterrorism, how do you perceive the link between cybercrime and terrorism? And like what steps or what advice would you have for security leaders who might be, you know, managing assets that are of interest to both of those groups? I think that luckily I can say and knock on wood that terrorists are not as active as I actually predicted they would be if you look five or ten years ago. Uh, I was sure that they would be much more active. There would be, you know, hackers for hire that they would take and they would use this. It simply hasn't really happened. I don't think you can exclude it from happening. So I, I think we need to prepare for it. But what you see right now is the more hybrid use of criminals to do things for nation states and state actors who doesn't want to be named. So instead, you have these groups that are, are working on behalf of the government, but, but doing nasty things, but in their name. That's the closest one I, I, I think I've seen. Real terrorism is still there to come. It will come, don't worry. And it might be taking out a couple of satellites, for instance, and we just saw in the leak from the US that this young uh, private had done that, that the Americans are actually very concerned about the Chinese efforts to take out GPS satellites and other things in order to to prevent the American weapons and uh, ships and whatever to, to actually be following a path. And I think that this is something that terrorists would also find, uh, let's say, ideas to do if they could do that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of the manifestation of terrorism and cybercrime come together purely as uh, fundraising. You know, similar to how we see kind of heavily sanctioned countries have been accused of these kind of yeah. efforts, in particular, like in the ransomware space. You know, there's a lot of belief that some of these ransomware operators are actually operating on behalf of countries that no longer have access to kind of the global financial markets. Yeah, and North Korea is a good example, right? And North Korea, I think, is easy to point at. They were also involved in the SWIFT attack. Uh, where they uh, tried to steal money and they actually got away by stealing 100 million. And I think that you will see a number of these countries, but but it's few countries that are getting money in that, but they are because they're so heavy embargoed. So this is one of the few things that they can actually do. In the old time, they would also 
you know, smuggle drugs if they could or cocaine or other things to finance. Now it's it's cyber. Right. Right. Yeah, that's what I've read as well. Uh, it was uh, interesting to me, the drug dealing part. I would have never guessed that because you think none no. of that comes from there to begin with. So, no. But they can use their diplomatic mail and everything to, to actually smuggle it in. And, yeah, right. And I, and I had never, uh, I had never honestly considered that angle. I still think of them as like weapons exporter, manpower exporter, but it turns yeah. out, no, they are leveraging kind of the goodwill of, of the rest of the world to facilitate those things. It's very interesting. So another shift then. So you've worked in both public and private sectors, and you have built these partnership organizations and things like that. Can you talk about the importance of those kind of you know private-public partnerships, and in particular as they relate to combating cyber threats, and like how can individual companies or entities take advantage of those collaborations? Like how do people even get started? It's another great question, David, and I think that the only thing that works in actually creating a resilient cyber dimension is public-private partnership. You don't need it in the physical way in, in the same way. You know, if there's a bank robber, the police will come and they will take care of it. It's a robbery, a rape, or whatever. But in cyber, all the information needed for law enforcement is in the hand of private sector. So the public sector needs for the first time to ask for information and cannot just get it. So the cooperation needs to be enhanced and needs to be increased, but it needs to be in the way that it's a two-way street. There is often too much dependency or I think that the public service think that the private sector should just give them information and get nothing back. But we cannot, it's classified, you know, it's investigation, blah, blah. If you want to have a true cooperation, it needs to be a two-way street. You get something, you give something back so that we can, in the private sector, you know, increase our security posture and you get the information and you can help us in, in that. The problem is that when a nation state tries to defend its population towards crime, it uses prevention, protection, and prosecution. Prosecution is very, very weak in cyberspace. You know, we do not arrest enough people because we don't have the right information at the right time and we do not have a very good cooperation. But that is why we need to enhance that and need to be a two-way street. And the second thing I want to emphasize is if you work together, you need to have a non-punitive cooperation. So you cannot with one hand ask the company to give you information and afterwards send the regulators out to give them a fine because they haven't done uh, whatever they should. Then they will never share anything. Mm-hmm. So you have to create some kind of safe havens in which you can exchange information in real time and use it and then have another regulation system that, that looks at the businesses and see if we tick all the boxes as we should. So I think there needs to be done much more here domestically and then internationally to combine it. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree. You know, the regulatory ramification of cooperation has manifested more than once, right? There have been more than one organization that really did have regulators come after yeah. they assisted, you know, because in the course of that, another agency not even involved in the investigation was allowed access to the investigative resources. And in the course of that, they said, oh, and we caught these people, you know, with the crime uh, committing, you know, or, you know, violating a policy, let's call it that. And I think that fear, unfortunately, because of those events is is a founded fear. You know, it's, uh, it is, it is real. So I would wholly agree with you, almost like, um, how there are whistleblower or Good Samaritan yeah. laws, we yeah. should have some type of cooperation 
laws. We do for criminals. Like if if we one do. criminal yeah. turns, they are afforded that. But if you are not in your regulated business, there is unfortunately very little protections for that. You might get a promise from the prosecutor who says, oh, I promise to not. But like in the, let's use the United States as example, the prosecutors that are say working for the FBI, they report to the Department of Justice. The Internal Revenue Service does not. Do you know what I'm saying? So anything yeah. that gets shared that way, if those people didn't make that promise to you. And I have seen plenty of instances where a company's, so I was asked to go help and advise a company one time who had just been called by the FBI and the FBI basically was like, hey, you have a foreign government is stealing your data. They're on your network and uh, you know, call these guys. And they had given them the contact information for a major incident response company who I won't name. But that major incident response company showed up and said, okay, yeah, they told us as well. And here we are. And and you should just plug these devices in on your network and, and we'll catch them. And nobody at any point told them what country, why they thought so, where the information came from. And as it turned out, like five years later, it was released. I believe it was the NCFTA shared the details, but basically there have been a cooperative effort between the National Security Agency and the Federal Bureau of Investigation to help the NSA was leveraging the FBI to get the word out, right? But the FBI didn't have the authority to say, well, we know this because the NSA is monitoring these adversaries' efforts. And they, so because that was all classified, like you said, and so they couldn't come say this. Well, my phone rang and on the other end is this person I've never met. And they said, look, you all seem very, very trustworthy. Would you fly up to where we're at in the Northeast and come talk to us? And can we explain something to you? And when I got there, that was the story they told me. And their reasoning to call us was because we weren't any of the parties that were recommended by the government, which is really astounding. I mean, I, I almost felt bad for them to be in such a situation where they clearly needed help they were help was at their door and they didn't want to let them in their house because they didn't trust the help that had shown up because the help to be fair didn't show up and explain to them well this is why we're here and this is why we know and they instead you know just waved their hands and said well we can't tell you just plug these in on your network and now i'm not a spy novel author but i can tell you that's a pretty movie plot situation, right? And then what you plug it in and now somebody's on your network. I mean, this is how people get popped every day. So I thought that was very, but that was their actual legitimate approach to, you know, getting the cooperation was, well, because I said so, or because yeah. you should, and I can't, but I can't tell you why. I mean, that's just yeah. crazy. Yeah. It is crazy. There is always a need for, for secrecy, of course, and, and confidentiality, but I think that should at least be a, a room where you can talk more open and freely because you have the same goal. And the only country I've seen where it actually works is the cyber directorate in Israel. They have simply established a legislation saying that if any company says anything that can be used in this investigation, and by that they will show that they haven't followed the law for whatever, they cannot be punished. And that's the only country I've seen, and that works. And we are trying in Denmark now to see if we can copy-paste that system. And if we can, we might be able then to spread it. Because the idea is that we want to combat this, and then later we want to make sure that we also follow all the rules. But we don't want that to be missed out by actually uh, you know, trying to, to punish those good guys who want to share information. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there is nothing worse than punishing the Good Samaritan. You know, it's just not good.
So let's switch and, and talk a little bit about cyber as a whole. So in your opinion, what are some of the most significant gaps like in the current cybersecurity landscape and how can governments and organizations kind of work together to close those aside from communication advocacy that we just established? Yeah. First of all, I think that the whole digital transformation animal is a huge one. So even though we shouldn't uh, you know, complicate things, it is rather big and encompass everything in society from schools to education, to prevention, to security, whatever. So you need to chop off the elephant in one way or another. And the reason we need that is because people cannot understand what we talk about if you don't chop it up and try to address it in smaller pieces. And I think that we are facing two major problems in the digital transformation. The first one is crime on the existing network. That is done by two groups. The first one is uh, cyber criminals for profit, and the other ones are state actors in order to you know, see if they can take down a country and their energy sector and whatever as a, a beginning of crime or they want to spy. The other big area we have is data protection. That is surveillance capitalism. That is AI. That is big data. That is the the possibility to store so much information about all of us that you can actually interfere with the democracy, with the elections, and you can try to actually interfere with what people think. You can hack their hearts and minds. And you need to separate these two things because it's different to the, the last one I spoke about is more politi- you need politicians to say how much can you store, how much is allowed to be exchanged, do you own your own information or whatever. You know very well as I do that if you're 18 years and you use the IT, you have 1 million data points on you. So I can give a good profile of any users that he is a white or black or he's Protestant or he's a Jewish or uh, that he believes in this, that he eats this, and he and he does like uh, immigrants or whatever. You can do that, and this is used right now in many areas, and that can actually have a huge impact on how the world will develop. That's one side of the digital, let's say, dilemma. Then you have the other one, which is talked about is, is crime and state actors. You also see there are blurred lines between these two. So you actually sometimes you don't know if, if this should be addressed by the intelligence services or the open police or and, and how should we do this? Is it classified, non-classified? And we need to find a way how to address normal, greedy, profit-oriented cybercrime that is 90% of all the bad things happening on the internet and the last 10% is nation states walking around, you know, trying to do whatever they are doing. And that also needs to be addressed. But I'm actually a bit concerned about our lack of ability to identify and to punish these criminals who just, you know, are driving the third biggest global economy in the world. It's the economy number three is cybercrime right after the U.S. and China. And I think we need to do a bit more in that area. So that is one of the gaps. I don't have the answers, unfortunately, because with the geopolitical tensions that you see, it's impossible for us. So let's say, investigate in Russia. In Russia, you have lots of cyber criminals. And I don't think they work for the government. But what I know is that the government is not doing anything against them. Because what is bad for the West is good for Russia. So they just let them steal our money and do whatever. And we cannot come after them. We can send information. It doesn't help. Right? I think the same situation will also be with China. So we need to find a different way how to protect ourselves if you cannot prosecute the gangsters anymore, that they are still holding the gun. So you need probably to have more 
bulletproof wrestler. You need to find a different way how to deal with crime in this area, which is different from the physical, where you need to be at the place where you commit the crime. You don't ever need to travel to Denmark to steal the Danish money or to ransomware attacks and whatever. You will never visit that. How do we deal with that? And that's a huge, let's say, challenge for all of us. And again, I need to think that the good guys in the West try to unite themselves. And luckily, the most of the criminals, they don't want to spend the money that they steal in Siberia and other places. They need to travel. And at some point, we will be able to catch them if we are fast enough and we, we play our hands well. But that is a, a challenge that, that, that we need to address. Sure. You know, the weather in Sochi is pretty nice most of the year. So unfortunately, they, they, they don't necessarily They also have, have areas. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a guest on in a previous episode. Her name is uh, Renee Dudley. She authored a book about ransomware. And one of the things that she said that I thought was very insightful was the nation state actors are aware of how massive the, let's call them, greedy crime angle as opposed to intelligence gathering. They're well aware of that. And in a lot of cases, they use the fact that people expect to be ransomware. Okay. So think you're a company and you you have ransomware as the one of your say, you know, top three threats that you have there. They use the fact that they know that's true to where they gain access, they breach someplace and uh, to gather intelligence or say, you know, plans or, you know, whatever information that they're, that they're after, mm-hmm. but then they purposely unleash ransomware at the end to cover their operation so that it's like the all pulp, the ultimate plausible deniability, right? Like, oh, it wasn't us. It was these criminals. So unbeknownst to the criminals, they're actually providing not just cover, but they're providing someone to actually get in trouble for what they did because you know you can take a person's malware say person a writes some malware victim a is the target of your intelligence agency your person b the intelligence agency you break into victim a unleash person a's malware after you take your stuff and guess who did that now well it was person a and person yeah. a thinks oh wow i caught a huge fish but actually they didn't catch anything. In fact, maybe never even targeted those people. And instead they become kind of the patsy, you know, the fall guy for what our efforts. And I I have to admit, I had never considered the value to uh, nation state actors to the fact that like opportunistic cybercrime is such a, a huge problem that they can hide right in with them because 90% of the gyrations are the same, right? Like uh, seeing a cyber criminal dance on the dance floor, you don't know if they are working for some agency or if they're working for themselves. The motions are the same. You wouldn't know because you can't you know, see in there. And I had never really considered that. So it's very interesting that you comment on kind of the same, the same yeah. thing. They're aware they're not doing anything to stop them. But in this case, she pointed out, well, not only are they not trying to stop them, but they're using them, you know, as a shield to take the fall for what they actually did. And I thought that was very, very interesting. I think uh, you're right. And I think false flag operation is the name of the game. I, I used to be a spy, right? In the Danish intelligence, uh, security mm-hmm. intelligence service. And and lying and cheating is part of the game here and to obtain the results, uh, so to say. So, sure. so what you do there in, in a good effort sometimes is not, you know, the most nice things. 
and the Russians will do, and the Chinese will do false flags. They will point things that has been done by a Brazilian gang, which they have done. And you can see that attribution is very, very difficult in cyberspace. And they know that, and they take full advantage of it. And that's also why it's so difficult to build trust. If they manage to put in, you know, various problems between allies by pointing fingers towards this was done by Denmark or a Danish group or, or whatever, then you are a bit more cautious to work with that country. So that's the name of the game. And that's why you also need to be cynical, but you need to, to also try continuously to find ways to cooperate with the good guys and not let you uh, sidetrack by these efforts. They will happen. They did that during the Cold War before the internet, and they will continue to be used. And I just think that we need to build bridges and not walls. We need to cooperate more between the good guys. That is our only hope. And we will prevail. Sure. No, I absolutely agree. You know, a bridge is way more useful than a wall anyway. They have a saying, uh, you know, show me a 10-foot wall and I'll show you an 11-foot ladder. And that's uh, and that's always going to be true. So I know you said you were hoping to retire or you're planning to retire. So this may be the worst question for you ever because it may just bring you right back into the fold to no telling. But what do you see the future of cyber risk management? What does it look like? And if any, you know, what role do you want to play in that future? First of all, I think that what you will see is that we are in the beginning, we are in sense cyber crime and, and all these challenges we have. That's also why we are, we are bumbling a bit around and we don't know our way. This will be normal. You know, the next generation after us, this will be more normal. So you will see that cyber risk is just another risk. It could be investment risk, a capital risk, a risk of pandemic and whatever that businesses need to take into account. So I hope and I think that it will be on a lower level, that it will be important, but just as important as the other things and be dealt with in a more automated way than the way we do it with now because we are so unfamiliar with the consequences that we have and what if this and what if that. So I think that we you will see it will be leveled out. It will be more normalized. What I also think that, that we need to take into consideration is that we need to bring it up to a risk-based defense. Right now, everything is dangerous. And that is also because that a lot of cybersecurity companies, they hype a lot of what is going on because it's, they, they sell this and, and, and that silver bullet and whatever. You need always to consider, is this a risk for my company? Am I in the crosshairs of, of the FSB or, or, or the Chinese intelligence hockey. I, I produce sausages, right? So I'm probably the only thing that will come across me could be a cyber criminal gang that will ransomware me or, or do other malicious things. So I need to have a defense that is adequate to the risk. So it needs to be risk-based. So I'm trying to promote that in order to avoid us to spend too much money and too much power into something that we cannot avoid anyway. The last thing I think that we should do is we should stop talking about security, but talk about resilience. It's all about having the resilience to manage a cyber attack or any other attack and elegantly get through it and go on with the key business that you're doing. If it's Coca-Cola or if it's a cars you're doing or whatever, you need to create resilience. And resilience is more than, than security. That's also communication lawyers, prevention, and, and all of this. And I think that you need to strive for that. You also, in that sense, need to rehearse much more. So you, it's not about if you get hacked, it's when you get hacked. So why do you pre don't you prepare 
already now with an exercise in your organization with the board and anybody else and say, we have now been hacked. Somebody has ransomware. What do we do? Do we pay? Is it legal to pay for? Is it, is it illegal? Do we have a Bitcoin wallet? What about our backup? Can we do that instead? And you have these two tracks and all that you need to do and you need to learn to communicate without the internet. Do you have a, you know, a, a paper where you have the phone number of your your CISO so you can call him because everything has disappeared because you're ransomware. So I need this resilience need to be trained much, much more. And in that respect, I think you need to simplify it. You need to see if you can do it on a conveyor belt and you need to industrialize cybersecurity in that way. And then you can use your brain to think about new scenarios in the in the coming years that will happen. And I think you, you ain't seen nothing yet. I don't think that we have seen the end of cybersecurity or the end of the methods. There will be much more and they will be even more uh, poisonous than they are today. So you need to think ahead and be there when they arrive. And my role in that is that I will try to promote that when I speak and I will continuously speak on conferences and other areas. I will try to build trust. I will try to create and build domes and iron domes and networks. I'll try to bridge over uh, international borders, and I'll try to articulate what I just said, that humanity will survive. Don't look at it always as problems and expenditure. I think cybersecurity is also a positive thing that shows your customers how much you care about your, their information and their money and their credit cards, and I think you can use it in a positive side. But I still think that we need to work much more together, and we need to stop promising that we will do it and actually do it instead. And I, I right. feel like that. Yeah. And that piece is, is a very, very challenging component. You know, we're still largely living in what's effectively an age of magic to the majority of the population. Either the ones who get it are too young to articulate how they see it. And the ones who made it, it's already, I mean, just look at open AI since November, look at what that has done to the universe already, uh, right? So, and that's going to keep happening. That's, you know, and I think unfortunately, the fact that it is kind of magic, people have the hardest time being able to translate, you know, how much money should a security practice cost? What is the true savings? Like, do they even recognize, like, if a company comes out and says, we spent $100 million last year on cybersecurity, do the customers even see that as a well, look at that. They upgraded everything and they did that for me. Do they even see it that way? I really don't know. But I think a big piece of it is because people don't even understand how any of it works. So how then do you understand the value of somebody who's coming to defend that thing? It's It gets tricky. So talking about simulations and preparation, you know, we used to have a saying in the, in the Marine Corps that was, the more you sweat during peace, the less you bleed during war. And that is true seven days a week and twice on Sunday. You know, that is always, always true. And yeah. the more creative that you can get with your injects, as they're referred to, for those of you who haven't done tabletop exercises out there, but the more creative you can get with the person who is providing your injects, you can really learn about what your organization is truly capable of, or should I say, incapable of. Exactly. Yeah. Because a lot exactly. of, oh, I don't know. Well, who does that? Well, you know, okay, you're under this situation. Now we need to do this. Who owns that? And it's, you know, just silence in the room, blinking, meaning none yeah. of the, that stakeholder's not even there. And then on top of it, and they're like, oh, and then they don't know who 
actually to even call. So the reason why that person didn't get an invited is because no one even knows whose responsibility that is. And in many cases, they didn't realize that that was something to be responsible for. They didn't even yeah. think, oh, oh, I didn't know that was possible. So I couldn't agree more with these uh, tabletop exercises. A lot of people see them as a, a huge time sink. They see them as you know an unnecessary exercise. They see it as like, well, now we're not making money. We're just spending time. But little do they know, that, like yeah. I said, this the is more completely you wrong, David. Yeah. This is completely wrong. They need to. When you sit there in the room and don't know what to do, and you do this in peacetime, there is no war. You go home and you prepare your business and you do playbooks because what happened? It would never happen on a Monday where everybody is on work. It always happened on a Sunday in the middle of the holiday season mm -hmm. where you cannot get team A, B, and C. And that's why you need playbooks and you need to explain it and exercise it. So if you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail. So you need to do that. And I urge everybody because that will also generate some goodwill from the board and the C-level. They can mm -hmm. see it. They will then allocate time and money for you to actually do the things. So mm -hmm. Come on, do those exercises and table exercises. Absolutely. And you know, people out there would probably be shocked to learn this because boards in particular have this reputation of being uninterested in cyber and on, you know, whatever. And that's only true because it's not presented to them in an interesting way. And what I have learned is if you bring these tabletop exercises and you invite them to it, yes. more than zero of those people will take you up on it. They will say because yes. they're because it's a ubiquitous component of our society, right? Technology is around us everywhere, and these people, though they're not technologists, though they're not practitioners, they are living in an, in a technological world. They know this, and when you invite them to come be part of the decision making component and and to learn about it. That's the best way to get buy-in. Like, what's the best way to go to the beach? You know, to convince your parents to take you to the beach? Well, swim with them when you get there. You know, like it's exactly. the same yeah. kind of a, a idea. Yeah. And the board will love it. And Bobby, they, they loved it. We did it every six months. They loved it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Unfortunately, a lot of the world, many, many CISOs have said like, oh, I've got to go present to the board. And they always present it like, oh, I've got to, you know, whatever, you know, climb up the mountain on my knees. You know, they act like it's going to be the worst experience ever. But why make it that way? Why, why tell your, if, if you believe it's going to be terrible before you start, well, guess what? It's probably going to be. And instead you should be coming in thinking, uh, what is it? The pipe piper, right? You should be thinking yeah. like, how do I go in and win these hearts? How do I win these? minds instead they go oh i have to go give this report and it's it, yeah. it's a shame so yeah. trolls this has been a very very good conversation thank you so much uh for joining us today we're about out of time so if our listeners wanted to follow uh what you do next how would they do so and uh again i hope it's uh you know watching you fly fish or you know whatever it is you like to do in your in your copious free time once you're retired so but all that said if people wanted to follow your publications and your research or things like that how would they do so i'm on linkedin and I'm actually very uh, active on LinkedIn, and uh, I always answer people when they reach out to me. I always try to promote their ideas, and I try to do whatever I can to support. I think the strength is in your network, and I claim to have a very, very strong network that I can reach out to uh, almost all countries in the world at a high level and actually get somebody on the phone to do something. That is very important in the business we're in. So if you want to reach out, please do so. I'm here to help, and I'm here to help everybody and get ideas. I don't know everything. I love to get into a good conversation. I also really enjoyed our conversation here and also to listen to you, David. It's been a huge and a great pleasure. 
Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. And folks, uh, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.